it's an interesting idea, but I don't buy the argument that any given constitutional right is more important than another. I believe that they are all equally important and equally applicable under the appropriate circumstances. I also believe that anybody who tries to tell you that one particular right is more important than another is trying to sell you something. They want you to buy their product. They want you to buy their program. They want you to buy into whatever they're, they're doing. The truth of the matter is, is that no constitutional right is more important than any other. That said, I think that we as Americans have a very special relationship with the First Amendment, the very First Amendment, which of course does not mean that it's first in importance. You need to understand that. The amendments to the Constitution of the United States are not in any particular order. They were not ranked as this is the number one most important, this is the number two most important, number three, so forth and so on. If they had been, you would have to say, well, why then is quartering more important than a trial by a jury? It doesn't make any sense. But of course, that wasn't the way they were put together. The way they were put together was the First Amendment was actually originally the Third Amendment. And what we call the 27th Amendment today was originally the Second Amendment. But it's that First Amendment with which we seem to have an almost sacred relationship. It contains so much religious freedom, freedom to assemble, freedom to petition, freedom of speech, and freedom of press. By extension, it includes the freedom to association, which is one we don't normally talk about. But all of these rights under the First Amendment have become very special and very important to most Americans. Hugo Black once wrote, the very reason for the First Amendment is to make the people of this country free to think, speak, write, and worship as they wish, not as the government commands. Harry S. Truman, the president, said, once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it only has one way to go, and that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. No less than John Adams would say, the liberty of the press is essential to the security of the state. There's a, again, I'm not saying that the First Amendment is the most important. What I'm saying is that most Americans, it is the most precious. It is the most sacred to us. Without that freedom to speak, to associate, to write, the rest of them kind of lose their meaning, don't they? They kind of lose their impact. If you took away the right to a trial by a jury, how would you complain about it if you didn't have a First Amendment? It's a fascinating idea, and it's an idea whose presence would become forefront in October of 1787 
as the constitutional ratification debates began to heat up, and the debates hadn't even really started yet, but the letters to the editor, the Anti-Federalist letters and the Federalist Papers, had both begun to, to rise. Those weren't the only things happening, though. On October 6th of 1787 in Philadelphia, James Wilson, who is the man who actually invented the presidency. We talked about this, I think, a few months ago back on uh, Dave Does History on Bill McLive. We talked about it um, during the ratification, or I'm sorry, the, the convention-ish uh, episodes. James Wilson is the man who literally invented the presidency of the United States. After the convention, he became an ardent Federalist. He was very much in favor of this. And while he, of course, believed that the presidency would be reined in by the limitations that he believed placed upon it, he also, like most Americans, believed that the first president would obviously be George Washington. I don't think anybody ever thought anything else. I really don't. Um, and in fact, based on you know the election results, you'd have to say that assumption was pretty clear. He was concerned, of course, about who would be the second man. And the convention tried to address that as best they could. But in his speech on October 6th, Wilson reminded Pennsylvanians that both Washington and Benjamin Franklin, the great Pennsylvanian himself, favored the Constitution and that therefore they should trust their judgments and become in favor of the Constitution itself themselves. I wonder often if Ebenezer Bowman was there listening to James Wilson. I, I, I kind of do. It seems like he would have been. Who knows? He was a Philadelphian. He was a lawyer. He probably heard the speech. But in this environment of debate over the Constitution, it didn't take long for people to start responding to James Wilson's speech. One of those responses was written by a man by the name of Samuel Bryant. Now, we know that Samuel Bryant wrote this. He is a Pennsylvanian. He is actually, under the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, he is actually the Secretary for the Council of Censors. Yes, I said Council of Censors. Now, you might think that's a weird thing to have until you understand what it actually does. It censors the government. It, it makes sure that the government cannot censor anybody else. It makes sure that the government respects freedom of speech in Pennsylvania. And yes, they can censor, recommend for impeachment, any government official in the state of Pennsylvania who violates that. Samuel Bryant writes an article, a, a, a newspaper letter, under the name Sentinel, which is cool because they actually use the 18th century spelling of Sentinel. It's spelled with a C, not an S, which can cause confusion at times. Uh, but nevertheless, he writes this article, this letter, Sentinel-1. The letter is very similar in tone to Cato's letter, very similar in tone. It is a direct response to Wilson's speech. Caesar's letter was a direct response to, uh, to, to Cato's letter. There is this idea that Sentinel has, that Samuel Bryant has, that 
we should not rush into things. He is absolutely adamant that just because Washington and Franklin say it's good, that may not be enough. It may not be sufficient for this. In fact, he, uh, he is really concerned that Washington and Franklin might actually be honorable in their intentions with the Constitution, but that they may be made instruments of despotism, despotism sorry, in the hands of the artful and designing. He's almost saying that Washington and Franklin are, well, he actually does say that Franklin's too old and doddering. He shouldn't be listening to him, but he's almost willing to say that Washington can be manipulated by people who don't have his moral standard. And he's concerned deeply about this. He is very worried that the presidency, as proposed, is just too powerful. And if it is that powerful, then if somebody like Washington or possibly someone else could be a tool for someone else who is a despot, tyrant, this could be a problem. He is also concerned about how the convention seems unwilling to continue its work. He thinks that a second convention needs to happen. If this is so great, he argues, why not have a second convention? Because obviously they could take this and make it even better, right? Well, you could, but then you're, you know, death by a thousand committees, I guess, is when you get down to it. But his absolute argument against this, this thing is that it does not contain a Bill of Rights. And that as part of that Bill of Rights, there is no guarantee anywhere. And remember, this is a guy who is the president, the secretary of the Board of Censorship in Pennsylvania. And he is absolutely livid that there is no Bill of Rights. And amongst those Bill of Rights, there is no protection for the freedom of the press. He writes these words. Friends, countrymen, and fellow citizens, as long as the liberty of the press continues unviolated and the people have the right of expressing and publishing their sentiments upon every public measure, it is next to impossible to enslave a free nation. The state of society must be very corrupt and base indeed when the people in, such, in possession of such a monitor as the press can be induced to exchange the heaven-born blessing of liberty for the galling chains of despotism. Men of an inspiring and tyrannical disposition, sensible of this truth, have ever been inimical to the press and have considered the shackling of it as the first step towards accomplishment of their hateful domination and the entire suppression of all liberty of public discussion as necessary to its support. For even a standing army, that grand engine of oppression, if it were as numerous as the abilities of any nation could maintain, would not be equal to the purpose of depotism over an enlightened people. The abolition of that grand palladium of freedom, the liberty of the press, 
in the proposed plan of the government and the conduct of its authors and its patrons is a striking exemplification of these observations. The reason assigned for the omission of the Bill of Rights securing the liberty of press and other invaluable personable rights is an insult on the understanding of the people. Now, this is Sentinel's argument against the ratification of the Constitution as it exists. You'll catch in there some phrasing that is interesting to me because it's, it's all about how despots, tyrants, as we would have called them, were willing to suppress freedom of speech. This is one of the things that many colonists, many colonials believed that King George III had done. And it was something that they had understood from history that was often done. They were also very nervous about despots who manipulate the media, manipulate the press. What do I mean? In 44 BCE, and again, this was well known to the American people in the 1780s, 1700s in general. At the Feast of Lupercalia in Rome, in 44 BCE, there was an intriguing event. Now, the Feast of Lupercalia is, is one of those feasts where uh, a lot of things are happening. I'm not going to go to the details, but what you need to really understand is that the, the people's tribunes run through the streets of, of Rome. And they stop to pay tribute to whoever the leader is that year, which in this case happened, of course, be Julius Caesar. And one of the tribunes running that year was a guy by the name of Mark Anthony, Marcus Antonius. You know him from Caesar and Cleopatra. And as they reached the place where Caesar was sitting, Mark Anthony ran up to where Caesar was, wearing only a loincloth, reached under his loincloth, this is kind of disgusting, but, you know, it's a different time, and pulled out a, a ribbon, a purple ribbon. Now, in Roman times, the kings did not wear crowns the way that they do now. They wore a simple ribbon that went around the head, tied in the back, and it was called a diadem. You've probably heard that word before. And Julius Caesar, sitting on the, the chair there in front of the entire audience, gathered to hear what was about to happen, watched as Mark Antony pulled out the diadem and said, Great Caesar, please accept this diadem and become king over Rome. Now, you are fully aware, of course, if you've been following along, that Romans cannot accept a king. That's, that's a... That's a horrifying idea. And Caesar, in great production, even as people are chanting, Great Caesar, become king, great Caesar, become king, holds his hand up and stops Mark Antony from placing the diadem on his head and says, No, I do not want to be king over Rome. I want to reform the republic. I want to restore it to its glory. And there's a smattering of applause. 
And once again, Mark Anthony, second time now, holds the diadem over Julius Caesar's head and says, Great Caesar, accept this diadem and become king over Rome. And this time, there's a little bit less cheering from the crowd. Yes, great Caesar, become king over us. And more murmuring. And as Caesar holds up his hand a second time, Julius Caesar holds up his hand a second time and says, no, I do not want to be king over Rome. There is a swelling of applause. And then a third time, Mark Antony holds out the diadem over Caesar's head and said, great Caesar, become king over us, become king of Rome. And once again, Julius Caesar holds his hand up and says, no, I do not want to be king over Rome. And this time, the third time, the crowd absolutely erupts with joy that great Caesar does not want to be king. He still wants to be a Republican. Of course, we know from our history, Plutarch in particular, that this, is, was a, this entire thing was a media manipulation. This was an act. The crowd had been salted with people who were supposed to cheer the first time, supposed to cheer less that were supposed to cheer the second time, and by the third time were supposed to lead the cheers as, as he declined the crown the third time. And while the media of the day, the, the town criers and the, the folks who went around and made the announcements, reported this whole scene, there was an interesting thing that happened. Coins were struck that day to celebrate the Feast of Lupercalia and Julius Caesar becoming the leader of Rome. And we still have one of those coins today. And if you look at that coin struck that day, you will notice something very interesting about it. Though Caesar had refused the diadem three times, stating that he did not want to be king, the truth was that Julius Caesar wanted to be king over Rome. He wanted to be king over the empire, maybe not Rome in and of itself, but all of the empire, because the rest of the empire would accept kings, the Greeks, the Egyptians, eventually the Parthians, so forth and so on. The Gauls, they're, they're all used to kings. We might as well have a king. And the coin was struck with him wearing the diadem. And this idea that, wait, he says he doesn't want to be king, but his coin has him with the diadem being king, well, this caused a great deal of con consternation and concern. And it literally led 60 senators to a month later, the Ides of March, because they recognized the fact that Julius Caesar, despite his media claims that he did not want to be king, wanted to be king. And there's a great deal in Sentinel that, that reflects this same idea. There's too much in power in that presidency. It's reminiscent of military dictators who say they don't want to do that, but maybe they do. Maybe they really do want to be king, and we cannot have that. 
and even the decline, even the declining of such an honor because of what Caesar had done, even even if George Washington had run a media campaign saying I'm not seeking the king, it would have been viewed with great suspicion because why would you have to say it if you don't mean it? Remember that they had called him the American Fabius before, and Fabius was famous for doing the same thing, for saying, I don't want to be king, but doing things that said, I want to be king. Without a protection of a Bill of Rights in the, in the Constitution, without that ability to say, hey, this guy wants to be king, or this guy's not you know, protecting the free press, this Constitution, how do we oppose that? Now, it's interesting because in Rome, they had no such laws about freedom of speech. They had no legal written code saying freedom of speech and freedom of the press are protected. They didn't feel like they needed it. They really didn't feel like that had to be written down because most Romans, particularly those of the uh, patrician classes and those of the, the aristocratic classes, were trained from, from childhood in the art of rhetoric. They were trained, all of them, to be public speakers, to be able to be either lawyers or senators or whatever, tribunes. And so there was almost this assumption that you could say what you want, particularly in a republic. And they did. And you can see that, particularly in the late republic. You can see that quite, quite clearly with Cato and Cicero and others. But once the empire was established... There was still no law saying you can't be, you can't say or do whatever, but it was clear that you shouldn't. And the media and the artists of the day, the poets, the, the playwrights of the day began to suck up to the government, the Caesar. They began to praise Caesar as it were not just Julius Caesar, but all of the Caesars. And they began to do things that made it clear that they were towing the government line as opposed to standing up for free and open speech and open press of the day. And Sentinel is very concerned that a, a tyrannical president could do something similar, could force media, could compel people in the media, the press, and speech, and even worship, to say the right things the right way, instead of being free. And if he could do that, well, liberty then <laughs> goes away. It leaves us with some considerations for today, doesn't it? As we watch what's going around. Do we actually believe in a free press and free speech, or do we just, like the Romans did, pay it lip service? Do we just pretend that we support it? How many times have you heard conservatives call for the silencing of an opinion they don't like? More than once, I can tell you that. Social media. While it technically is a private company, while it technically isn't subject to the First Amendment in many ways, but 
is it simply towing the line? Is it simply going along with what the government wants put out? Media in general, what does it proclaim? What does it talk about? Is, is it the truth? Or is it just what they, what they think the government wants you to believe? There is a story floating around right now about Amazon banning a Russian author. You can't find this Russian author's books on Amazon.com. And after much inquiry as to why that was the case, because this Russian author is in opposition to the current leadership of Russia, the official response of Amazon is reported to have been, we're just following the laws, the applicable laws. Is that free speech? What about woke ideologies versus free expression and free association? When we're told, not just that we have to say something, but we have to believe it. Do we have free speech? Do we have free expression? Do we have freedom of association anymore? Or are we just paying lip service to the idea? And how did we get to this point? Washington, as it turned out, turned out to be more Cincinnatius than Fabius. And we'll talk about that at some point in the future. We actually already have back in Constitution Thursday. But but he turned out to be a man who was willing to set aside the power. He was not someone who was hungry for power, nor was he someone who could be manipulated by the artful and the the people who were, you know, <laughs> designing on creating a despotism, despotic government. He was not capable. He was not subject to their whims. But what about the next man? We've had some very good presidents and we've had some very bad presidents. And it seems like more and more the presidents, because there's more and more power concentrated in that office, are less and less able to resist those things. And you don't have to look very far in history right now to find those men who seemingly are subject to artful designing men and nations. Also keep in mind that after the Republic in Rome, more than one emperor was proclaimed by his troops and or government officials as emperor. They would kill one, replace him with the guy that they wanted, who would do what they wanted him to do. And that kind of resembles some things now, doesn't it, in a way? Or could it, depending on how we continue to grow and go? Sentinel was very firm that the Constitution, in order to be acceptable, must have a Bill of Rights, and it must contain the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech. Because without those two things, you don't even need an army. If you, if you can get away with crushing those two things, you don't even need an army to crush the people. You've already done it. You've already got them to say two plus two equals five and believe it. Sentinel's letters, again, 
hardly known to us today at all, are some of the strongest arguments for why there should be a Bill of Rights and why there should be what we call the First Amendment today. I think we would be wise to go back and review those things so that we have the same understanding as the people who brought us these things before we start saying to our presidents, our governments today, tell us what you want us to do and we'll do it. Because believe me, Sentinel would not have approved of that. He would have said, you're subject to artful and deceitful men who want to rule over you.